I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Live Mike. We are into the final half hour of today's episode. We've covered a lot of ground today, some of it pretty heavy stuff. All that domestic violence information we combed through, uh, it's heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking, and it reveals uh, some terrible tragedies in not only our community but in some uh, realities taking place across the country. And as policymakers take a look at these realities, uh, it will be fascinating to see uh, what comes as a result. Uh, We also took a look at all the night one goings on at the Republican convention as it took place virtually, but uh, we'll say uh, originating in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Joining me, joining me to discuss that a little bit and also also to talk about a goal which he uh, laid out before us all, and, uh, and I was one of the first to raise my hand and say I'm in uh, a moonshot challenge to get this coronavirus under control and uh, take a few strong, strident steps towards a return to some semblance of normalcy. Boyd Matheson, opinion editor of the Deseret News, host of Inside Sources, and expert in all things politics and otherwise. Boyd, how you doing? Hey, doing well. How you doing, Lee? I'm all right. Uh, thanks for hanging out. You, you, we watched those Republicans last night uh, chat about why their boy Trump is the best one to, uh, in the land. And uh, and some hits and misses, uh, to be sure. Uh, I, I think the misses were mostly in the attacks against the Democrats. Those things just always fall flat. It just is a, a really tough sell, especially if you're doing it to an empty room. Uh, yeah, I, I, can't, I keep having these flashbacks back to the uh, Republicans in 2012 when Clint Eastwood came out and spoke oh. to the empty chair. <laughs> Boy, and, what did I tell uh, you? We don't, we don't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's so, I mean, it's just so comical that that's kind of where we are. We're actually talking to empty stadiums now uh, as it relates to that. I thought Tim Scott had the, uh, the, was the winner of the night, to be sure. Uh, he is a an extraordinary soul and just a good guy beyond being a, a great senator from South Carolina. Uh, but I think his personal story, uh, and I think he tapped in. He he took some jabs uh, at Joe Biden in an interesting way, but not to the point where uh, it was the nasty stuff or it was the uh, you know all negative all the time kind of thing. Right. Uh, and I think he got to that that higher vision, which I think is always the test of a great convention speech: is can you take the audience somewhere? Uh, and especially, again, doing it all virtually, can you keep them engaged, sort of like a radio show, uh, for, for more than one segment and uh, get them excited about where you're taking them and then give them something to do and move on? So I thought he was clearly the winner. Nikki Haley had a good night. Uh, I thought Herschel Walker had a great night, a non-politician uh, who told a great story and, uh, and made some interesting points. 
But back to uh, Tim Scott, you, you mentioned that he was, uh, you know, not as heavy on the the straightforward Biden bashing. Uh, he did have some criticism, certainly, uh, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't superficial as we saw elsewhere. He prefaced his uh, he prefaced his criticism of Joe Biden by saying, "Listen, you really, when evaluating a leader, need to not only focus on what they say, but more importantly, on what they do." And then he went through a laundry list of things uh, which. Uh, you know, disappointed him, at least in terms of what uh, Joe Biden has uh, done or not done. Uh, I, I admire yeah. that. Uh, I, I am certainly yeah. one of the critics that say, you know, you're not going to win this race by bashing the other guy. But there are certain debate tactics that uh, that do reveal the shortcomings in your opponent. And I thought uh, of anyone he was able to to pull that off. Yeah, completely agree with that. The, the, gratu- the gratuitous jab is the worst of all jabs. Uh, because it's just there because it's an easy line. Normally in a convention, it's an applause line or a laugh line. Uh, but I, I actually liked the way, as, as you laid it out there, Lee, that he was very specific. And there were things about race, uh, by the way. And so, but they were very, very specific in terms of this is what Joe Biden did. And here's why, that's why I think that doesn't, isn't enough for a leader. And here's why I think we need to continue to move forward. So I, I think those kinds of things are very important. If you're just talking about Joe Biden's gaffes or you're talking about, the, you know, the liberal left, you know, those things don't take anybody anywhere. Uh, and, and we should always remember when we evaluate these speeches, uh, when you talk about things in generalities, you very rarely succeed. But when you talk about things in the specific, you very rarely fail. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason why Tim Scott's speech was successful last night. To your point, Lee, he was very specific when he needed to criticize, and he was specific in his story in terms of uh, what the nation's about and where the nation should go. Yeah, I, I believe that. And, and, and I think he had the line of the night, too, as he reflected on uh, the, the life of his own grandfather. Uh, in the span of one lifetime, his family going from cotton to Congress, all within one man's life. Uh, that was one of those, like, I kind of got chills listening to that and realizing uh, what, yeah. that, what that meant and what it must mean uh, for the Scott family. Uh, listen, Boyd, I, I didn't I didn't bring you here uh, to to review the convention of last night, nor look forward to what's coming up tonight. I wanted to talk to you about uh, your moonshot challenge. It is something you laid out uh, mid July, uh, and it was a challenge you laid out for every Utahn uh, to do something. And over the course of fifty five days, uh, is there something which we can rally behind and engage in as energetically as we did uh, after John F. Kennedy delivered his his uh, visionary speech uh, about getting to the moon. H- h- how do you see us doing so far? We- we've got about two weeks left uh, before the deadline. Are we going to make it? Are we going to accomplish the goals you laid out? Yeah, I-, I think we're doing some some really extraordinary things. It's you know it- it's classic the people of Utah uh, and why the nation can look here and say, oh yeah, they they kind of get it and they're and they're kind of doing it right. We- that's a good thing. Uh, and I think we're seeing a lot of people just take that personal responsibility and saying, you know what, I may not love a mask. I can't tell you how many people have reached out to me and said, I hate masks, uh, but I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I think it's making a difference. We're seeing the numbers go down and some balance there, uh, especially as schools open up. I think I honestly think the next week is going to be the real test week uh, because we're back in school. More activities are being engaged. Churches are, are getting a little more engaged. Uh, and so I think that the next week is the real big test. But there's been Utahns who have done, done all kinds of things to really step it up. Uh, we had one, uh, someone uh, listened to the challenge, uh, Benjamin Fox and uh, their company, uh, Alsco. Uh, they stepped up and they, they brought in to give away 10 boxes 
of high-grade masks for teachers and administrators and staff and faculty at schools and uh, gave all those out. Uh, we, actually, we actually did 10 plus 1 because we always take things to 11, as you know, Lee. Because uh, uh, right. if you can do 11, you have to do 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 11 schools, junior highs, high schools, elementary schools uh, around the state all got uh, these nice big boxes of, of masks to help protect the, the people who are on the front line. Uh, our teachers and administrators uh, who are doing some of that hard work and heavy lifting far away from the camera. So uh, to me, there's a lot of great success stories going on there. We don't always report on those. We always have to report on the, the big party that somebody held or, right. or the negative stuff. Um, but there's some extraordinary positive things going on. I think it's making a difference, and uh, I think we've got another two weeks to really push uh, because, again, this is the test. Everything up to this point has been pretty easy. The real test is, as the more we engage the economy and society, can we maintain it? Can we sustain it? Uh, And to me, that's going to tell us how we did uh, come Labor Day. All righty. Well, you and I will touch base again on Labor Day, see how we did. I think we are moving in a good direction. I think we have a good trajectory. And more than all that, I think that we have the right spirit to accomplish this goal. Boyd Matheson, thanks a lot. Hey, thanks, Lee. All the best. All right, it's same to you. Uh, a quick break. When we return, uh, I had an interesting conversation with producer Amy yesterday. It got my wheels turning, uh, and it stemmed from a very basic question. What have we learned? Over the course of the last six months, what have we learned, really? I'll give my answer next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. I still can't get over that little piece of data we learned from the Brigham Young University researchers. They, uh, Emily, Leslie, and Riley Wilson, together, uh, they surveyed major cities across the country, specifically looking at domestic violence calls, and they observed a 7-plus percent uptick, on average, Uh, amongst some major cities across the United States. Fourteen cities uh, were surveyed, including Salt Lake City. And after a conversation with a detective with the Salt Lake Police Department, Detective Wilking, uh, we learned that uh, that 7% number nationwide uh, is is pretty low compared to what we're experiencing here in Salt Lake City. Uh, 17% is the number, is the uptick uh, year to year of domestic violence-related phone calls received by uh, the, at least the Salt Lake City Police Department. Uh, you hope that it's not the case uh, elsewhere, but unfortunately the reality is that it is likely the case. Now, I asked, I asked, one of the questions I asked was about policy. Are there any policies uh, that lawmakers or any type of decision maker may be able to implement to mitigate uh, these uh, these new findings, mitigate this heartbreaking, this heart-wrenching uptick uh, in domestic violence uh, calls. And while the researchers weren't prepared exactly to deliver policy recommendations that fell outside the scope of their study, they did happen to make some observations, two in particular. Uh, the first was that the uptick in domestic violence calls did not correspond with stay-at-home mandates. So uh, in March, April, when we saw uh, various municipalities and states uh, implementing stay-at-home orders, uh, the, the uptick in domestic violence didn't correspond uh, with those orders, that it in fact uh, more closely corresponded with uh, just general uh, fears about the virus and the general uh, fears that came from, say, the, the president's uh, executive orders and such like that. 
All right. Uh, so the researchers did not observe that there was a causal relationship between stay-at-home orders and domestic violence. Uh, it is much more broad than that. And now here is the second observation that was made, which absolutely fascinates me and I, I suppose makes sense, but I never, I never would have predicted. So because we know that, or at least it is observed, that the uptick in these domestic violence calls comes not uh, as a result of stay-at-home orders. It must be other things. And so, you know, we're left to speculate, well, it, maybe it's financial uncertainty. Maybe someone has been furloughed or laid off or fired. Uh, uh, and then there is, of course, the, uh, the very real reality of being left in close proximity with someone for a prolonged amount of time. None of that is, is an excuse. Uh, but... Uh, potentially an observable motivating factor. Now, here is the, the piece of information that absolutely fascinated me. And it is that the researchers observed a notable downturn in the number of domestic violence calls corresponding with the distribution of the stimulus checks to come about as a result of the CARES Act. Can you believe that? It's sad and fascinating. Sad that the fix, quote-unquote, is so simple, and then fascinating uh, that it is that simple. And I certainly, like the researchers, am not prepared to say that we ought to be handing out money in an effort to uh, uh, eliminate domestic violence. There must be uh, more appropriate solutions, uh, but in terms of the short-term fix and the very uh, immediate results there, that's what they observed. Uh, fascinating stuff, and uh, I've committed those researchers to touch base with us again once they find more, and if they do stumble upon uh, policy features which do have an impact, and so I look forward to further conversations with them. But as we wrap things up today, I want to have a conversation with you quickly about a conversation uh, or a question that producer Amy asked me just yesterday after the show as we were preparing for today's episode. She asked what I had learned so far as we have endured the coronavirus. And initially, my mind went to thinking about businesses and science and the vocabulary we have learned since all becoming armchair epidemiologists. We know now all too well the definition of words like antibodies and contact tracing and community spread and incubation and social distancing and PPE. I started thinking about what we have learned about science, the science of vaccine development. We now know all about the different phases through which potential vaccines must pass before they can be deemed safe and effective and fit for use among the general population. We now know that a novel virus can bring hospitals to their knees. But as I rattled off these newfound bits of knowledge, which someday will occupy the pages of uh, the textbooks studied by medical students and healthcare professionals for the rest of time, Amy said, no, 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 I, I mean the more profound lessons. What have we learned about ourselves and others? What have we learned about our country and its capacity to deal with adversity today? And, well, that gave me pause. I haven't done too much introspection. Uh, I haven't uh, looked uh, inside myself uh, during this chapter of history. Uh, and I have been so focused on the science and our battle to defeat this thing that I haven't looked too broadly at the lessons we could be learning as a country and a people. Well, I have now. And the biggest lesson we have learned throughout this saga is that there is a time and a place for politics and tribalism. 
And on that front, we have failed. We have failed on all levels, starting at the very top of government and trickling down to our very own social media postings. This is a biological crisis. Biology is an objective science. Somehow, through the injection of politics, there are some of us who are dramatically overreacting, and at the same time, when presented uh, with the same data and findings, there are those of us who have not taken uh, this as seriously as it should be taken, have not uh, viewed this as the real threat that it is. And this is not an exaggeration to assert that the injection of politics into this chapter of history, this chapter which has challenged us at every pressure point we have, it's not an exaggeration to assert that the injection of politics into this chapter of history has cost lives. Our tribalism has a body count. And before you say, Lee, ease up on the preaching, please know that I'm not exempt. I'm right there too, rooting for my tribe, denouncing those that disagree. And I've learned that that wasn't productive. I've learned that there is a better way. And that brings me to the fact that this has been a bona fide crisis. And crises like this don't see race, they don't see religion, and they don't see politics. It infects and kills at will and does so without checking your voter registration card. We have faced crisis in America before. Our history is peppered with crisis, acts of war, terrorism, economic ruin. We have faced them all and we've done so well because we have avoided the injection of politics. We have failed on that front here, but we have a chance to correct course. So let's do so. Let's remove politics from our fight against the coronavirus, and we will make the moonshot challenge, as Boyd has described. That's it for me. Next up, Jeff Kaplan's after. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.